0: So, welcome everyone, and um, congratulations with another day of full practice. And I'm very touched with um, your hearts. You're looking, diving deeper into the body, into the heart, into the mind, and um, in some ways it's rather rare in the world be doing that. There's, as you know, so many other things we could be doing. Here's kind of a haunting uh, words from St. Augustine that was written in the year 399. 399 is a long time ago. And St. Augustine writes... The people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge ways of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast ocean, wondering at the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Yeah. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. three hundred ninety nine. So we've been um, diving into this body and into this mystery, this fathom long body. So we've been working with one particular list, these 32 parts of the body. And as we've been saying, these are really doorways or gateways into so many other parts. And um, I wanted to share with you another list. (laughs) This is written by a Santa Cruz poet named Wendy Yen, and when she heard about that I was doing the 32 parts of the body and all of those parts, she decided to create a poem that she calls the 110 functions of the body. So I have to get my breath on this. (sighs) Okay, so here we go. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking humming singing screaming whispering smiling frowning laughing upholding anchoring proso- perceiving sitting standing balancing walking running jumping dancing hugging tensing relaxing contracting stretching trembling enclosing excluding warming sh- warming shivering cooling sweating itching scratching shedding moving touching feeling engorging climaxing Sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, coasting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Whew. I love that. So we've been speaking about, um, you know, why why are we doing this, and whose body is this? Whose body is this? So Richard was saying, you know, this age thing came up in his arm, and you know he didn't invite that in; it just came. So here's some other interesting facts about the human body. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. So you might want to smile more. (laughs) Humans shed, as I mentioned, about 600,000 particles of skin every hour. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body places new head hair, if you still have some, every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows and consists of 450 hairs every three to five months. The body grows a new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as yesterday. So if we got a profound microscope, we could begin to see all these things happening within this body. And within this body, this fathomlong long body, our thoughts and emotions, our memories arising, feelings, our lives, we're learning to acknowledge what's here and what's within us and, and with others. We don't know what's going on with others. I was very touched last night when Richard spoke about the breather and then to find out, oh. In retreat, sometimes we get sometimes what's called the Vipassana Vendetta. We're getting really mad because someone's breathing too much or they're going too slow in the line or whatever or we're falling in love. All types of things happening. But we don't know at times what's really going on way down there so again Richard found out about this gentleman having some breathe problems like oh there's a reading from uh, Miller Williams that is very touching and powerful it's called Have Compassion he says have compassion for everyone you meet even if they don't want it and what seems to be conceit bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. Seems to be these bad moods a sign No ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. And that's true for every one of us here. What's going on way down there where our spirit meets the bone. All that we're holding, all that we're living with, all that's in our lives. The joys, the sorrows. But as we come to know within ourselves through this practice what's going on way down there, where our spirit if you will, meets our bone we begin to understand yeah, that too, with others. We all have our ten thousand joys and sorrows with this life. In these last few days I've been very touched with the interviews and i number of um, just stories of people's lives and painful memories and, and some integration and some healing. It's a work of a lifetime. But I just want to acknowledge this very tender and very courageous work of the heart. And although at times we may need to care for ourselves and maybe this isn't the right time to move into something incredibly deeply painful, there are important times when it is important to turn in to what's here. There's a perennial wisdom within many spiritual traditions of this turning in and Richard mentioned last night about the turning into the skid and and this this came from uh, an experience I had when I was 16 driving, grew up in Boston area, driving in the snow and getting into a skid and desperately trying to get away from it and skidding out more. And, and I was telling my dad about this. He said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. And that scared me when I said that. I didn't want to believe that. I felt counterintuitive. Wait a minute, I want to get away from the skid? But after experiencing the futility of continuing to turn away not believing my father... And then realizing that I, you know, I have exhausted that, I remember that one day when I turned just so, so slightly towards the skid and I could feel the car beginning to straighten. And I feel in some ways that it was an important part of the learning in my life and it set a seed of like learning how to turn into my fear, into my pain, into what's here. And to begin to possibly to begin to trust that, to begin to develop some confidence in that. So learn to turn in. I know that it's very scary, the thought of turning in. And of course, when we do begin to turn in, sometimes it looks bigger, it magnifies, it amplifies. And there's a reason that that happens it's because you're actually turning on the light of awareness to take a look at it. So there's a threshold where it may get bigger, but if we understand that, we'll begin to see that that th- bigness will begin to dissipate. There's a Christian monk in the Middle Ages. He uses wonderful Middle Age descriptive language of this process. His name is Francis fenelon He says that when the light increases, and we can consider the light to be mindfulness, awareness, when the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We could have never believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we can be filled with horror. So please bear in mind for your comfort. Please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Jennifer Wellwood, she goes on and speaks about this turning in, it's called unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition that I flee from, it pursues me and each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me." A very powerful teaching. And just one more from Dana Falls It speaks about the same thing. She says, there's no controlling life. There's just no controlling of life. Try to contain a lightning bolt or a tornado. Dam a stream and it'll create a new channel. Resist, and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow, allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. And the only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fair fantasies, failures and success. And when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, the practice becomes to simply bear the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, a whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Hmm. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. I was very touched this morning with the question. It was really about, like, why are we here? I mean, the joy is so fleeting. The pain is so long. Maybe equanimity, maybe that'll be good. I love that question. I think that was just summed up our condition. Fleeting joy and at times longer pain is part of our human condition. And this really brings us to the deepest of questions of, you know, who am I and what, what is this? You know, we're sitting on this planet, it's spinning around in a solar system, in a universe, like what the heck is going on here? It's really mysterious. I love the story of the Buddha, because the Buddha's story is like a human story. And he had those same questions, deep questions. What is this life? But it didn't happen right away. He was a prince, and he was destined to be a great king, and. Some people, some wise people that came to see him when he was a baby, because the king invited all these holy, uh, some holy people to come to give predictions. And few, most of them said he'll become a great king, but one said he'll become a Buddha. And the king didn't want him to become a Buddha, so he kind of kept him in a very sheltered life and gave him everything that he wanted. So if he was around today, he'd definitely be getting the iPhone 6. Whether the bigger one or the small one, I don't know. <laughs> he'd probably have both. And he had all of the fleeting joys. He had all of the fleeting joys of his time. And in his 29th year, he went out of his kingdom, his palace, and with a charioteersman, Chana, and they went on a a series of uh, outings and came across what's known as the fourth heavenly messengers. The first was his contact with a very old person. Whatever in his sheltered life, or maybe because he just was not aware of these things because the pleasures were so much there, he saw for the first time in his life that there really was aging and that there was no escape from aging. I'd like you to... Reflect, too, of uh, sometime in your life you saw your first old person and you might have wondered who and what was that. (laughs) The second heavenly messenger was someone that was very ill. Very, very ill. You, too, probably have met one that is very ill, if not yourself being ill. The third heavenly messenger is death. And when And Siddhartha Gotama, which is what the Buddha's name was, uh, when he heard about these things he was shocked to realize very very deeply that it was not going to last and that it was inevitable for aging, that he could not escape from, and illness and death. And this catapulted him into a sense of what is this life story goes that he came across what's known as the fourth heavenly messenger. It's like a monk, a holy person, a samana that was dedicating their life to understanding what is the meaning of life and living a very life of deep integrity. And when Siddhartha came across this person, the way they walked, the way they held themselves, there's the something just, who is this person? You too have met a heavenly, the fourth heavenly messenger. I want to invite you to Reflect on this from time to time, because like, y- you you because this is you're here, you have made contact with these four messengers already. You wouldn't be here. My fourth heavenly messenger was Bill Jackson. After flunking out of college and being readmitted back on warning, I was majoring at the time before flunking out in getting drunk, getting high, and trying to find girlfriends. <laughs> and. Um, so I was readmitted back on warning. My mother begged me, Bobby, isn't there some class you would like to take? And I looked at the course catalog, and I saw something about the wisdom of the East. I didn't know anything about it except for one thing, and this is going to be really funny, but it's really true, is that I absolutely loved growing up eating Chinese food. <laughs> I love the food. I liked the artwork in the restaurants that even the waiters and the waitresses were different than Howard Johnson's. It was like a different feeling and there was something about the East that was compelling to me, that, that there was something there. And so I went into this class and I walk in and my professor, this is in the early 70s in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, he was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I have never had a professor like that ever before in my life, and the way that he spoke and the way that he held himself, like, who is this guy? This guy is different than any other person I met, and he knew something. I I wasn't sure what he knew, but I knew that he knew something, and I knew that I wanted to know what he knew. And he actually introduced to us the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, the way of life from Taoism. I began reading the Tao and I, oh, I couldn't believe that someone had thought about life in this way. I had never been exposed to anything like this before in my life. And I just fell in love with the Tao Te Ching. And I came across epigram number 47 that says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And that was a really huge invitation and I began to look more inside. This was the beginning of my more formal meditation practice, which is a long time ago. Forty years or more. So it might be interesting for you to think about who were your messengers that awakened you to this path. So it said that the Buddha, he went off into the forest and he Meditating, and he was a, a very smart and uh, skilled practitioner and student and he mastered many of the meditation practices. was studied with many meditation teachers, learned at the time all these concentration absorption practice mat- practices, mastered them, and then was invited by many of these teachers that he studied with to sit right next to the teacher. You know everything I know and you can now teach. But Siddhartha still felt that he could calm his mind, could develop deep absorption, but still, this what is this life still hadn't been understood. So eventually he left that type of practice and he went into self-mortification with a a small group of of monks and practiced very strenuously, almost to near collapse. It was said that he ate one grain of rice a day. And... Towards the end of this time of doing this, he could touch his belly and feel his tailbone. At the brink of collapse, he realized the futility of these extremes of punishing the body. It was believed maybe that was the way you could get enlightenment. And he left these group of ascetics, and he began to take food, and began to get um, his nourishment back, and decided that he had been to so many different teachers, he would practiced so many different practices and teachings, that he came across this tree... And he's just decided, I'm gonna just stay here. There's nowhere else to go. I need to understand this for myself. This is a resolve that he took. No other teacher or teaching to go to. I need to know for myself. And it said that as he began to sit some of the stories about the Buddha that he came across, that when he began to sit, he recalled the memory of when he was a child and he was out in some forest, farm-like setting and it was a beautiful day. And we get these northern California days, they're just exquisite. And I think during that day he was just marveling at the beauty of the day and just feeling connected and so forth. And then there was some farmers right uh, nearby that were so this is kind of the beginning of the planting season and there was some oxen there and they were digging with the plow to dig it into the earth and the, the sensitivity was very heightened. And because of that heightened sensitivity, as he saw the, the oxen, the, the blade, the plow blade going into the ground, he almost sensed or could feel or hear the cries of the worms being cut open. And it's this powerful moment of the beauty of this world and its fragility. And as a way of self-soothing, evidently he just started to be mindful of his breath and got very calm and relaxed. So he recalled this memory many years later, now sitting underneath this tree. And with that memory, and this again, this is actually... This is something that arose inside me, so it's not in the text. But it makes sense to me. So I own it. But something happened underneath that tree that very different than what happened before. Because he had mastered meditative absorption. He knew how to become one-pointed and calm and attain jhanas. But I believe because of that memory, something happened and he turned his attention from absorption to beginning to look at the changing nature of things because of that fragility and preciousness of of the worms being hurt and and then also the experience of these heavenly messengers of the realities of aging, illness, and death. And something happened under that tree that hadn't happened before. He began to realize this impermanent nature of things. There's a whole story of this vigil of him, Mara, the tempter coming to try to tempt him away, but every time Mara would try to discourage him or distract him, he would just say, I see you, Mara. Even after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara would come and say, hey, Buddha, and Buddha would say, hey, Mara, come and have some tea, and then Mara, "Ah, he saw me again. (laughs) But something happened underneath that tree, perhaps with the penetration of the nature of change, where great realizations arose within him. These are sometimes known as the Four Noble Truths. I almost like to say they were great realizations, the realization of suffering, the inevitability of suffering. Yes, there's wonderful joys in this world and, and you know, everything. And there's also birth and there's, there's aging, there's illness, there's death, there's being around those that, you know, being in situations that you don't want to be in. And so there's just this deepening and understanding that suffering is part of this world. The second realization was this realization about the causes of suffering. And to me, this is one of the most significant, important realizations that I, um, I, I find to just, this has informed my life in such a powerful way, personally. The causes of suffering. And of course, the third and the fourth realizations are the, the teachings of the pathway to the lessening and the eradication of suffering and liberation. But I want to spend some time tonight talking about these causes because I think they're incredibly important. They've been incredibly important for me personally to understand more deeply about my own pain. So actually, I'd like to read a very um, beautiful translation of this noble truth of the cause of suffering, written by Achan Amaro, who's a Englishman, who's a, a bhikkhu, a monk, and he's now in England. He's also has, has been part of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council and lived here in the states for a number of years at Ebugeri Monastery. And uh, he wrote to me one of the most, I don't know, personally touching translations and so I'd like to share this with you and he says this monks is the noble truth of the cause of suffering and it is craving craving that is compelling and intoxicating and which causes us to be born into things again and again ever seeking delight now here and now there it is namely the craving for sensual delight the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Did anybody ever have that experience of craving that was compelling and intoxicating? Yeah, I know that. I also want to say that as we take a closer look at these causes of suffering, that there actually is even a deeper cause that gives rise to the craving, and that is ignorance, not seeing clearly, unawareness, sometimes called delusion, but it's this quality of unawareness, not seeing clearly. As I mentioned um, the other night with my beloved teacher, Tampu Lucero, he spoke about darkest of all is ignorance. And this ignorance sets in motion this cycle of what Sometimes in Buddhist psychology, it's called dependent origination, which is really this cause and effect when, when there's unawareness that leads to grasping and, and this whole cycle of suffering. In Tempelusaro, he has actually a very simple definition of this dependent origination or this cycle of suffering, and he says that if you know, k n o w, if you know it will break, but if you don't know, you will go around and around. This is dependent origi- origination. If you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go around and around. And so this unawareness is, um, feeds and fuels the cravings. And This is why we're practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, becoming mindful of the body, thoughts, emotions, the field of our lives. So I'd like to just unpack a little bit these three cravings, sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. So first, the craving for sensual delight. We could say this is like the eros or the libidinal drives, the pleasure-seeking principle. As I mentioned, uh, Yes, I think we all know, as human beings, that at times our cravings can be compelling and intoxicating, and drive us, and and feed things to be born into things again and again. And you know, we think about food and sex, shopping. Amazon is very clever. They get the one click, you got it. It's like boom, you got it. But you know, it feels good for a minute, you got it. But then you know, you get it, and I want another. Amazon, one click, boom. <laughs> so it's a rush of energy, of happiness, the fleeting happiness. But it doesn't last. Because all conditioned phenomena coming and going. I remember one time I was eating my favorite vegan ice cream at the time, a tofuti ice cream, and I was in the land of satiation. Everything was wonderful. It was heaven. I was home. And then I noticed that there was only one more bite left. And then this wave of sadness entered into me. What the hell am I going to do with my life? Well, I thought to myself instantly, I could go get myself another bowl. But I actually knew enough to know that that probably was not going to do it. But it's very tempting, because when we are in this place of satiation, I really want to invite you, next time you get satiated, bring your awareness there. Where are you? And and it's a very interesting place. We desire this, it's like a longing to be satiated, to be back in the womb, to be back in the garden. And the garden only lasts for a little bit and then we're cast out once again. Kabir, he writes, please friend, tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, but it keeps on spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and I wore a robe, but then one day I noticed the cloth was well woven so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. Then I pulled back my sexual longings, but now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) This can go on for a long time. But there's a longing here for all of us. There's a longing. And that longing takes us in an addictive tendency, particularly if we have a belief that something outside of ourselves is going to make us whole, going to make us happy. It's going to be long-lasting. It's going to be permanent. This craving for sensual delight is really three words. I want it. So rooted in this belief, perhaps, that we're not enough, that there's some type of deficiency. Looking for happiness outside of ourselves in a world that's constantly changing is difficult. The second type of craving is to to be someone, to be something, like this craving for existence, to being. And we can say, in a psychological sense, like our superego or narcissism, which, of course, has its Modes of inflation and deflation. But it's typically I, I, I. Hi, I'm Bob Stahl. I teach at Spirit Rock. I drive a Prius. I mean, like on and on it goes. I'm special. I have to tell you, and and hopefully you'll tell me back so I'll really know, because I don't really know myself. I need you to tell me I'm special. How long have I left myself for another? This leaving Emily Dickinson, she writes, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell your name, the live long day to an admiring bog. <laughs> I don't think so. But how many times have we left ourselves... For recognition, to be seen. It's like this old American country western song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. But there's this like a hunger, a desire to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be recognized by another as a way of my self-worth. This is such a suffering, such a dukkha. And I, I know this myself, of course. So again, there's that belief that I perhaps am not enough and I need to have others tell me I'm special. And of course, it is very important in our developmental ages, like the gift of our parents to, be, to recognize to us that we are special, that we are human beings. No more, I mean, lovely human beings, but no more so and no less so than anyone else. And of course, there's times when we can be so damaged by those close to us. And that story of that damage defines who it is that we are, that becomes a definition. I have a friend. He was tall and he was clumsy growing up, lived in a small place, and his father gave him a nickname. And you probably know the children's story about King Midas everything you touch turns to gold. Well, he was called King Minus everything you touch breaks. It's pretty intense. Fortunately, there's a happy ending to this story. He's a meditator and he realized that this was a, this is not who all that he was. But we can be told that times are not gonna amount to anything, you're not pretty, you're not smart, you're too big, you're too small. Richard was talking about this all last night, the love of body. And so these, these are very powerful that begin to, our stories of who it is that we are. The belief of deficiency. So we look outside for that recognition So Shah says, no self, no problem, but not so easy. Mm-hmm. And he says, let go a little and you have a little happiness. Let go a lot, you get a lot of happiness, a lot of happiness. Let go completely, you have complete happiness. And not so easy to let go. The third cause is the craving to feel nothing. Thanatos, the death instinct. Not wanting to be here the ostrich head going into the ground. For many years, I did not relate to this um, cause of suffering. I could definitely relate to the first two big time. But then I had a powerful teaching that awakened to me to how much I've lived my life not wanting to feel things. So fortunately, it's a good ending. But at one point, um, uh, some years ago, my son was potentially diagnosed with uh, lymphoma. And um, I was actually teaching a meditation retreat when we found out. And um, I noticed that whenever we got done with the sittings, I would go to my room and I'd go to sleep. And then I'd, I'd wake up and for one second, I'm okay, and then, oh, my God. Fortunately, he had mono. I love mono. <laughs> but at the time, you know, I, was, I, I, I just wanted to go to sleep. And I was actually writing a Dharma talk about these noble realizations, these noble truths, and like, oh, this is what the Buddha's talking about, not wanting to feel. And, that, and then it just, like, how much I've not wanted to feel with... Alcohol or drugs or television, I mean like all of a sudden I just saw it in so many places that I turn off I go numb. I just don't want to feel. I just don't want to be here. I make up stories Whatever it is so that I don't have to feel. It's a very very powerful teaching for me Yeah. To numb myself Lose myself Still have to admit I love science fiction every now and again. I still watch my shows Simon and Garfunkel, they sing a song, that's probably the the theme song for The Craving to Feel Nothing, where they sing, I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. Yeah. A rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. So again, the belief. The belief of this deficiency, the inadequacy, these stories that have enslaved us. And I also want to say, because when we hear the word craving, when the West is like, uh-oh. So I want to say that, um, actually Bhikkhu Bodhi speaks about this, and I love this, this what he says. It, it's, it's not meant, like this ignorance and craving, it's not morally wrong or evil, But it's just that it's the root of suffering. It causes suffering when we're not seeing clearly. And it is true for so many of us, we do have this longing to be loved, to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be held, to be at home. And the question is, where are we looking for this? There's times, you know, I'm very lucky. I have a wonderful partner at times I can be lying in the bed right next to my partner and I'm still the loneliest person in the world. Even she can't do it all. There's a space between me, myself, and I that needs to be entered into. Is the happiness to be found outside of us or is it to be found inside? Achyam says, people sometimes have asked him about uh, what Dhamma book should I read? And he points to the heart. This is the Dharma book, right in here, this is where it is. So this is the work that we're engaged in, So with these body parts, and it's amazing hearing some of the stories, some of these body parts have activated old wounds, old traumas, I mean, just our lives, our history is here inside our body. So the 32 parts of the body is another access way into our lives. In these things that arise, we begin to see our stories, our woundings, our pains to be acknowledged, to be investigated. Perhaps to begin to see that these limited definitions of how I've defined who it is that I am are indeed limited. Maybe we didn't know that before. I'm so happy my friend discovered he was more than King Minus that everything you touch breaks. But how many stories are we carrying around in our head? I remember once in an MBSR class... We were going around a circle, and one older woman says, you know, there's hardly been a day in my entire adult life that I haven't called myself an a-hole. And like, people were shocked. And then another one said, well, I don't say that, but I call myself a dummy. Like, how many things are we saying to ourselves that are so unkind that we would never say to another person? These are stories, these are narratives that enslave us. And our practice of awareness is to wake up this sleeper one of the ways that I like to um, speak about, there's many references about the Buddha awakened, experience the unconditioned, and there's a lot of different ways to translate the unconditioned, but one way that I like to perhaps think about it is that if experience the unconditioned, then they must have broke through some type of conditioning to experience the unconditioned. And what is that conditioning? That conditioning perhaps is our stories, our narrative, our limited definition of how we see things. And so the sense of breaking free of this story that has enslaved us, the story that has been fueled by unawareness, greed, hatred, and ignorance. This is why we practice, so we can begin to wake up. We begin to see where it is that we're stuck, where it is that we're holding on to, where is it that we're not seeing clearly? This is the important parts of practice. We cannot bypass our egos, our stories, our practices to get to under. Oh, this is the story that I live with. Someone once said that you know it takes 50, it took like fifty years to finally individuate and become myself, and then you see what you've turned into, and then the next fifty is about untangling that tangle. <laughs> But we can't bypass our story. We have to work with our story to understand it, to see through it, to see perhaps its limited definition and to experience deeper freedom. It cannot be bypassed. Otherwise, it's a spiritual bypass. This work that we're doing on ourselves is the most noblest of works, the most difficult of works. The Buddha spoke about it's harder to conquer one's mind than 100,000 soldiers in battle or something like that. Just is of course a metaphor, but what else is there to do? This noble work of purifying our heart. And you know, here's this guy that did something almost 2,600 years ago and we're still talking about it. And more than just talking about it, it's not just bowing to some wooden or bronze statue, it's a living Dharma of those that have been practicing through the centuries, an awakened living Dharma that are passing this on, these liberative teachings that you're practicing and being exposed to, it's living. It's alive. A teaching bringing greater freedom and heart. So perhaps uh, when I started on the first night about Hafiz, that you know there's a ruby buried inside here. And so maybe within that narrative and within that story and within that confusion, as we begin to see through our stories, we may discover more deeply the ruby. So this is from uh, Achon Mun. I'm going to make my closing and then I want to do a short little meditation with you. Achan Moon was a very beloved meditation master in Thailand and teacher of many wonderful uh, contemporary, well, teachers uh, like, including Achan Cha. So, so Achan Moon says, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature, see the elements, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. And when its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. And in this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. Very beautiful. So I'd like to just maybe end with a very short meditation and this was a a beautiful practice that my beloved teacher Tongpu Lucero taught us and this was one of his last teachings before he died and he said that this would be a really good meditation if you were dying this would be a good meditation to die with. And but, he, but also that this is also a really good meditation that gives us a taste of freedom. Because sometimes we think enlightenment is somewhere far away. So he was also pointing, in this particular practice, we can have a few moments' taste of it. A little hors d'oeuvre of freedom. And so just sitting comfortably... And just feeling into the body and just taking a few breaths mindfully in and out. <coughs> and he used to just chant these words and you know, I'll again just... Uh, Say them in English. Go Ragakine, Doda Kine, Moha Kine. Ragakine, Doda Kine, Moha Kine. Araga Kine, Arag, Adoda Kine, Amoha Kine. And so as we breathe in and out for these next few breaths, Just breathing in and out with the experience that in these few breaths, there's not any sense of grasping or wanting or greediness for anything. That there's actually an experience where there's contentment, there's some ease within the body and mind, just breathing in and breathing out. few breaths, breathing in and out. There's the absence of hatred, aversion. The heart is filled with compassion and loving kindness as you breathe in and breathe out. And then in these next few breaths, the breathing in, the clarity of the knowing of the breath as it comes in and out. There's no ignorance here. There's no delusion. No, not seeing clearly. It's that clarity of the knowing of the breath in and out. And so these qualities of contentment, loving-kindness, compassion and clarity, clear-seeing is a taste of freedom, accessible right here and now, breathing in and breathing out. And so may all beings find the gateways into their hearts to grow with deeper clarity, growing compassion and ease and contentment may all beings be free and at peace. Thank you for your time and heart and uh, time for some walking practice, and then we'll have our closing sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening.